Matthew 7, verses 24 to 27. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell not. For it was founded upon a rock, and everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Too many people are building lavish sandcastles in their hearts, presuming their hopes are secure without realising that a storm is soon to wash away their houses of sand and leave them surprised and confused. Now compared to a sandcastle, a real house requires more time, effort, resources and determination to build. While many are lazily building for themselves sandcastles, others who take life more seriously are building real houses for themselves, but they are doing so on the sand. It does not matter whether your house is built entirely of sand or if it's just built on the sand, they will be washed away. You cannot tell if a house is built on the sand by what is visible to the naked eye. It might make use of the best quality timbers, the strongest bricks, the highest quality interiors, and look identical or even more robust than one built on a true foundation. The quality of the superstructure will not stop it from being swept away. It will only bring a greater loss to the owner when it is gone. The normal way to build a house, the remote control is a bit slow. The normal way to build a house is first to lay a foundation. Next, the frame is erected. Then external coverings are put over that frame, then the internal linings, and finally it is furnished and decorated. In our spiritual houses, that foundation is conversion. Then the framework is the doctrines that one believes. The external coverings are the words we speak and the external works we perform. The internal linings are our thoughts and emotions. And the furnishings and the decor are the graces of the soul. Fine manners, politeness, charm, hospitality, helpfulness, tolerance, empathy. Now Peter explains this in his instructions for house building. In 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 5 to 7, he clarifies each of these steps. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. He tells us that we begin by adding to our faith virtue and knowledge. Now the word virtue literally means moral excellence in today's common speech. But specifically in terms of Christian theology, the three virtues or three Christian virtues are belief, hope and love. Now belief, hope and love is the core framework of Christian theology and doctrine. 
Our belief in Christian doctrine gives us hope and love is the sharing of that hope. Our belief is to be informed by the knowledge of the doctrines of God and his word. Because without godly knowledge, belief is just superstition. So Peter tells us to put upon the foundation, to put the framework of belief, which is informed by knowledge. On that framework of theological belief, that is mostly now to sight within the walls, Peter tells us to add temperance and patience. Temperance means self-control. It means abstinence from evil and moderation in all things that are good. And patience means not being provoked to anger or to evil. So temperance and patience are the external cladding of Christians, as seen in our words and our actions. After the external cladding of the soul, Peter tells us that godliness, which he contrasts with listening to and thinking about and getting worked up over fables and foolish talk or vain gossip. He says in 1 Timothy 4.7, But refuse profane and old wives' fables, and exercise thyself rather unto godliness. And in 2 Timothy 2.16 he says, But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more godliness. Furthermore, Peter explains what the thoughts and feelings that lie in the interior of our soul are that should pertain unto godliness. Some say that the key to godliness is having a relationship with God. That is, sharing our thoughts and feelings with God as we might with an earthly friend. Perhaps, but Peter is more specific than that. He says in 1 Peter 3.3 about the internal adorning, he says, whose adorning let it be the hidden man of the heart, in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. And in 1 Timothy 2.9 he says, in like manner also, that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broidered hair or gold or pearls or costly rape. And today when we don't know what a woman is, I would say that applies just as equally to men. So the inside of our house, the hidden man of the heart, or woman, ought to be lined with the thoughts and feelings of a meek and quiet spirit, shamefacedness and sobriety. Do you feel shame in the presence of God? Anyway, Peter then tells us to complete our house by adding the graces of the soul, to furnish and decorate it with kindness and charity, which includes things like hospitality. So according to Peter, our spiritual house is to have framework of biblical knowledge and doctrinal belief, an exterior cladding of good works and actions, godly interior linings and furnished with kindness and charity. Now, all this seems very straightforward, except for one little detail. Peter implies that the foundation of our spiritual house is faith. That's what we are to add all these things to. By which most people understand to mean belief, as the two terms are commonly used interchangeably. Thus, most people would say the foundation of the Christian hope are his beliefs that one's belief is the rock upon which we are to build. If so, there is no point in Peter telling us to add to our faith belief and hope because they are all the same thing. Also, 
about the same thing. What it means is that the foundation and frame of the house are one and the same. Is that what Peter intended and what Jesus taught? In Matthew 18, verses 2 to 3, we read, And Jesus called a little child unto him, and set him in the midst of them, and said, Verily, I say unto you, Except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus did not say that the foundation of the Christian's hope is his belief, but conversion. Now, what is conversion? Theologians would tell you that the word conversion means a turning about or turning around. Some say that conversion is just a change of belief. And while at first you don't believe in Christ, you then choose to believe, and that's conversion. If this is what Jesus meant, why didn't he actually say that? Also, what it means is that if the framework of the house is the same as the foundation of the house, the house actually has no foundation at all. Review on Herald, February 14, 1899, says this, Men may turn from one doctrine to another. This is being done and will be done. Papists may change from Catholicism to Protestantism. Yet, they may know nothing of the meaning of the words, a new heart also will I give you. Accepting new theories and uniting with the church do not bring new life to anyone, even though the church with which he unites may be established on the true foundation. Connection with the church does not take the place of conversion. To subscribe the name to a church creed is not of the least value to anyone if the heart is not truly changed. We must have more than an intellectual belief in the truth. Many of the Jews were convinced that Jesus was the Son of God, but they were too proud and ambitious to surrender. So it's clearly not a change of belief. Others say that conversion is more than just a change of belief, but a turning around of one's life. More than committing to believe certain doctrines, they say it means being baptised, professing Christ, religious observances and changed behaviour. These confuse the foundation with the framework plus the external coverings. Others say conversion is changed feelings or changed goals and priorities that result from a change of religious belief. These confuse the internal linings with the foundation. All such have no foundation at all. Rivian Herald, November 27, 1883. All who profess the truth are not converted. Although they may think they are, some mistake transient emotions, ideas and fancies or resolutions formed in their own strength for conversion. A turning around or a change of belief or even of behaviour or of our words and actions, thoughts and feelings, even a change of character is no proof of conversion. You can completely renovate and remodel the interior and exterior of a house while its foundation remains unchanged. You can convert a Volkswagen Beetle into a convertible. You can cut out the frame, change the bodywork, replace the interior, but it is still the same underpowered engine, still runs it, and its handling remains lousy. But you say, the Bible says, by their works we shall know them. When I see a Volkswagen Beetle doing 0 to 100 in under 5 seconds, I'll know it's a new creation. I'll know a house is built on a rock when it's hit by a mighty storm and yet remains standing. 
Conversion is not the changing the furnishings and decor of your spiritual house. It's not adopting refined manners, becoming polite, charming, hospitable, tolerant and empathetic. Many like the Pharisees were respected, admired, reputable men having perfect manners, but like whited sepulchres, they are corrupt within. Conversion, not changing the interior linings of your house. Many today are moved by religious feelings. They hope in and think about God and claim to be converted while enjoying the lusts of the flesh. Conversion is not about changing your exterior covering, your religious observances, doing good deeds and speaking uplifting words. In all religions, many do exactly that while being in the grossest darkness and error. Conversion is not about one's theological framework, believing accepting the truth of the Bible, because acceptance of the truth will not save any, but just bring greater responsibility. Like the five foolish virgins that have and cherish their lamps, but who are empty within and are left out of the wedding. Consider the disciples. We know that people took knowledge of the disciples that they had been with Jesus because their lives had been changed. They'd been turned around. Matthew 26, 73 says, And after a while came unto him that they that stood by and said to Peter, Surely thou also art one of them, for thy speech betrayeth thee. And it's not because he had a Galilean accent. Desire of Ages, page 712, says the disciples of Jesus were noted for the purity of their language. Peter's house had undeniably been renovated, but it remained founded on the sand and unfit for heaven. Conversion is not renovating the spiritual house, it is the act of abandoning it and building a new house altogether on a totally different foundation. Not a foundation of doctrinal belief, not a foundation of good works and words and religious observances, not a foundation of religious thoughts and feelings, not a foundation of good manners. We may in fact ask God to change us, to put new wine in our old bottles, to renovate our spiritual house, and we may believe that God has indeed changed many aspects of our lives. God can certainly put new wine into our bottles and in some cases has done this. But all it does is make them burst and make them good for nothing. It is not new wine that we need, it is a new bottle. Unless we are first converted, unless a new foundation is first laid, the renovations of our soul will collapse more spectacularly when the storm comes. God can open the teaching of the Bible to our minds and convince us of its truth so that we believe it with certainty, as he did to the Jews, who in the end crucified him. God can change our outward behaviour to do good rather than evil, as he did with Balaam by changing his curses to blessings, but who perished in the end with the wicked. God can turn around our inward thoughts and feelings so that we love to praise God as those who will declare in the last day, Lord, Lord, but he will say unto them, Depart from me, I never knew you. Now, some are building their spiritual houses for their own benefits. But the real purpose of this building is for God to dwell in. We are to be the house, God the occupant. Accordingly, some people like to use the metaphor of building a relationship with God instead. 
The basis of their relationship is belief, trust and hope. It is evidenced by how often they talk with God and what they do for him, their words and actions. It is characterised by the thoughts and feelings you have towards God. The relationship is sweetened by their praise and faithfulness towards God. The metaphor is different. The application is identical. It would be hard to find men who had a closer relationship with Jesus than his disciples. They believed in Jesus. They have given up their past lives to be with him, to sit at his feet, to listen to his words and speak with him, to eat with him, to lay down with him to sleep and to awake with him in the morning. Yet Peter, and not just Peter, was unconverted. You can also be having this exact same relationship as he and discover in the end that your house is built on sand. So where are we? We read from Peter that their foundation is faith, which most people understand to be belief, which if true means that the house is either without a foundation or without a frame. We also read from Jesus that the foundation is conversion, which most people understand to be a change of belief that leads to a change of life, which means that conversion is just the renovation of an existing building. Yet, belief, not even a life-changing belief, is sufficient to constitute conversion. So what is conversion? And what is the role of faith in conversion? Is it true conversion takes place at a deeper level than belief? than words, actions, thoughts and feelings. It transcends all of these. In speaking to Nicodemus, a man who loved God and believed the truth, who had kept the commandments since birth, who memorised large portions of scripture and was of good reputation and fine manners, a man whose house did not need renovating, Jesus said in John 3, 7-8, Marvel not that I said unto thee, you must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but cannot tell whence it comes and whither it goes. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. What does it really mean to be born again? Can you see the wind? Can you hold it in your hand? Can you put it in a bottle? No, you say, but we can see its effects. The wind will blow around whatever is not fastened down. You may hear the noise of the wind, and see leaves shaking on the trees. But it is easy to counterfeit the effects of the wind with a sound generator and some mechanical force. The church is full of such counterfeit conversions, of those who, being emotionally moved, think they have been touched by the Holy Spirit, and those who have been intellectually convinced of some truth. It may have led them to join the church, adopt its beliefs and change their behaviour, but nevertheless they remain unconverted. Jesus said... Straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few that be that find it, Matthew 7.14, and Romans 9.6, for they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. Just like you cannot see the wind, the foundation of a house is hidden from view. The evidence of the new birth is not the veracity of the doctrines you believe. It's not how much truth you know, nor the religious observances you practice, nor the good works you perform, nor is it the feelings within and the thoughts you entertain towards God. It's not the refinement of your character, the kindness you show, the pleasantness of your personality. How then can you know if you were born of the Spirit or if your house is built on the sand? To understand true conversion, we first need to understand the difference between belief and faith. Some would say faith is confident religious belief. 
Others would say that it's a doctrinal framework of belief that defines one's faith. Others say that, well, belief is just an intellectual acceptance of the facts. Faith has the added idea of trust, hope and commitment. So if we put together all of these definitions, for a belief to be faith, one might say that it must be belief in certain doctrines, and those doctrines must elicit certain responses. For example, believing that the moon is not made out of cheese cannot be faith, because it is not a religious belief. Also, the devil's belief in the doctrines of the second coming and faith of the wicked is not faith, because it does not inspire him to trust or hope in God. So, is faith just confident belief in a religious teaching that results in certain kind of response? The Jews in 70 AD confidently believed that God would not allow Jerusalem to be destroyed and refused to fall away to the Romans, hoping in God's salvation. Was their belief faith? Or how about the inquisitors whose doctrinal belief inspired them to trust, to be committed and to hope in a reward? They believed that it was God's will that they burned heretics at the stake and that their hand in doing so was a righteous work. This is similar to honour killings in Islam, the witch trials in Salem, and even Hitler's final solution. Are these the works of faith? Theirs was not merely an idle intellectual assent. Their confident religious beliefs gave them hope and encouraged their commitment to its cause. Yet most people reject the idea that these examples represent true faith. This is why there are so many different religions. Each one has its own requirement for what is to believe and what the expected response is for it to qualify as faith. Who gets to decide what beliefs qualify as faith and which do not? Is it your own interpretation of the Bible, the interpretations of your pastor or the church organisation as a whole? What if you are unfortunate enough to be born in a heathen land and never learn the correct beliefs? Does God automatically and arbitrarily doom you to hell because your beliefs don't qualify as faith? In the contrary, Jesus explained that our understanding of Bible doctrines and our response to them has nothing at all to do with whether we have faith. Christ's disciples believed and trusted his every word. Yet Christ never commended the faith of his disciples. Yet Christ did commend a Roman centurion who was not his disciple, neither a Jewish convert who did not observe the teachings of the Old Testament. Jesus said of him in Matthew 8.10, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith. No, not in Israel. It was to the heathen Canaanitish woman who neither believed nor accepted the teachings of the Old Testament, but who came to Jesus crying, Have mercy on me, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. Matthew 15.22 Of whom Jesus himself declared to be a dog, as pagans were known to the Jews. Yet Jesus said of her, O woman, great is thy faith. And in case we misunderstand what that meant, Desire of Ages makes that very clear. Page 399. The people of this district were of the old Canaanite race. They were idolaters. 
and were despised and hated by the Jews. To this class belonged the woman who now came to Jesus. She was a heathen. So while faith and belief are typically confounded, the Bible makes it clear that faith is not the same as doctrinal belief. Indeed, many will be in heaven who have not heard of nor believed in Bible doctrines. Desire of Ages, page 638 again. Those whom Christ commends in the judgment may have known little of theology, but they have cherished his principles. Through the influence of the divine spirit, they have been a blessing to those about them. Among the heathen are those who worship God ignorantly, those to whom the light is never brought by any human instrumentality, yet they will not perish. Though ignorant of the written law of God, they have heard his voice speaking to them in nature and have done the things that the law required. Where is the Sabbath written in nature? The seven-day weekly cycle, where is it written in nature? Yet they will not perish. They've heard his voice speaking to them in nature and have done the things that the law required. Their works are evidence that the Holy Spirit has touched their hearts and they are recognised as the children of God. They've been ignorant of Bible doctrines but have cherished the principles of godliness. They know no creed, they're ignorant of fundamental beliefs and hence are devoid of hope in the Christian sense. We would say they have nothing with which to build a spiritual house frame from. Yet, though the house may not have any framework at all, no internal linings or furnishings, and maybe only minimal exterior coverings, like the Canaanite woman, their foundation of their house is solid. Even though they are missing many of the features we consider essential for a dwelling, and their primitive huts may just be barely functional, the Holy Spirit dwells within them. On the other side, you have the five foolish virgins who all believe the word of God. They know all the correct doctrines. They all have lamps, which is the word of God, and believe the word of God. Their belief inspires in them trust and commitment and hope. Their house frame is solid. They have external coverings of good works and deeds. They are not parting with the world, but are members of God's church, sincerely waiting for his coming. They are not hypocrites. They have goodly interior linings and furnishings, but their lamps are empty. They have much confidence in their religious beliefs and hope, but they have no real faith. Without a solid foundation, their house is not a shelter, but merely a facade. They will discover too late, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.2, that they have believed in vain. Review and Herald, November 27, 1883, paragraph 11. The want of genuine faith in our churches is making them very weak. There is a kind of faith that takes it for granted that we have the truth, but the faith that takes God in his word, which works by love and purifies the heart, is very rare. So as we can see, on one hand, you can have faith without doctrinal belief. And on the other hand, you can believe in doctrine, yet have no faith. While the two intersect, faith is orthogonal to belief. Now, a correctly constructed spiritual house has both faith and belief founded on that faith. Unfortunately, those who mistake belief for faith presume the spiritual house is solidly founded, but in reality, the houses are built on sand. Romans 3.28 says, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. If faith is one's belief, 
then what this verse means is that a man is justified by his own belief, which makes him self-justified. He has no further need of a saviour. His confidence is not in Christ, but in his own belief about Christ. He believes himself saved by virtue of his self-confidence. Such belief is the opposite of faith. What then is faith? Now the spirit of prophecy defines faith as follows. Faith is the rendering to God the intellectual powers, the abandonment of the mind and will to God, and the making Christ the only door to enter into the kingdom of heaven. 1888, materials, page 818. Now you'll notice in this definition that the word belief is totally absent. Also absent are the words trust, confidence, hope and commitment. Instead, we find the word abandonment and the word rendering, which according to the Collins Dictionary means to give up, to hand over, to surrender. So faith has little to do with belief, but much to do with abandoning ourselves. We can easily see that this is the case when we consider that Balaam believed and desired to obey God, and in fact obeyed God, but had no real faith. Judas believed Jesus was the Christ and desired to be with Christ in glory, but had no faith. Simon Magus believed the gospel and desired the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, but he also had no faith. If belief is not the same as faith, we see that it makes perfect sense for Peter in his house building plan to instruct us to add the framework of virtue, namely belief and hope, to our foundation of faith. Indeed, unless our belief is built on faith, irrespective of doctrinal correctness, our belief is nothing more than presumption. Also, if belief is not the same as faith, conversion is not a change of belief or a change of practice based on that belief. Instead, conversion is an abandonment of one's will, one's goals, one's desires, one's priorities, one's thoughts, one's confidence, one's self-image. It is the abandoning of our existing house and building a new one on a totally new foundation. So unlike belief that is natural to the human heart, faith is a divine principle that is unnatural and only comes from God. Which is why salvation is not by belief, but you are saved through faith. Now, conversion is not just our exercising of faith. In fact, true faith cannot be exercised until we are convinced of the structural flaws in our existing house and we determine to do something about it. Let's consider a couple of biblical examples of spiritual building projects to better understand conversion. Now, during his time with Jesus, Peter's house had been thoroughly renovated, as we mentioned before. Its framework was built on his belief in the doctrines he heard fall from Jesus' lips. Its external coverings was made of mighty miracles, of healing the sick, of casting out devils, of walking on water, of his testimony that thou art the Christ, of his witnessing the divine glory of Christ at the Mount of Transfiguration. The internal linings of his house were just as good. His unfeigned love for Christ, his desire to die for Christ, the conviction that Jesus was Christ, his personal relationship and companionship with Christ, 
Peter's house was magnificent and he presumed its foundation was equally solid. He could see no major flaws in his house and did not realise that it was built on the sand of self-confidence and that one day of storm and tempest would wash it all completely away. When that moment came, all of the doctrines he believed and his hope in Christ collapsed around him. The many miracles he had performed and witnessed became rubble. His inspired words were replaced with obscenities and curses. His elevated religious ideas were shattered. He was emotionally devastated. Confusion filled his mind, numb for a moment to feeling. He was soon overwhelmed by grief, hopelessness and self-reproach. Whatever graces he had held were blown away by the shockwave of the collapse. The entire edifice of his carefully constructed spiritual house was gone. He had thought its foundation was solid, only to discover in the crisis that it was sand. Now all that remained were his memories of the patience and mercy of Christ. How he longed to have heeded Christ's warnings and instructions and had built his house on an altogether different foundation. Knowing all this beforehand, Christ had prayed for him that in this devastating moment, not his belief, but that his faith fail not. That stone which Peter in his building of his house had set aside, Christ prayed that that would become the new foundation of a new house and that after his conversion he would strengthen the brethren. Like Peter, Judas saw no fault with his own renovated house and its foundation. His building was also made in the same well-constructed good frame. He believed Jesus' teaching that he was the Messiah. He believed the truth. The exterior cladding of his house was above reproach. He had a good reputation. He also cast out demons, healed the sick, proclaimed the gospel. He also had no idea that his house was structurally unsound. He also did not know what to do with the cornerstone of faith. His house was founded on selfishness, but he could not see that, and the rising damp of selfishness had permeated the interior of his house with a mould of covetousness. While Peter's denial of Christ opened his eyes to the realisation that his house had indeed been built on sand, and that he needed to rebuild on a different foundation, one of faith rather than belief. Judas saw no need to abandon his old house and build on a different foundation. And given another chance, he would have rebuilt another house exactly the same way as he built the first. Let's consider another example to better understand conversion. And that example is that of Saul, the first king of Israel. In Patriarchs and Prophets, page 610 says, the spirit of Jehovah will come upon thee, said the prophet, and thou shalt be turned into another man. And let it be, when these signs are come unto thee, that thou do as occasion serve thee, for God is with thee. And as Saul went on his way, it all came to pass as the prophet had said. A band of prophets returning from the high place were singing the praise of God to the music of the pipe and the harp, the psaltery and the tabret. As Saul approached them, the spirit of the Lord came upon him also. And he joined in their song of praise and prophesied with them. He spoke with so great fluency and wisdom and joined so earnestly in the song that those who had known him exclaimed in astonishment, What? 
Is this that is come unto the son of Kish, is Saul also among the prophets? As Saul united with the prophets in their worship, a great change was wrought in him by the Holy Spirit. The light of divine purity and holiness shone upon the darkness of his natural heart. He saw himself as he was before God. He saw the beauty of holiness. He was now called to begin the warfare against sin and Satan. And he was made to feel that in this conflict his strength must come wholly from God. The plan of salvation, which had before seemed dim and uncertain, was open to his understanding. The Lord endowed him with courage and wisdom for his high station. He revealed to him the source of strength and grace and enlightened his understanding as to the divine claims and his own duty. Now in many ways Saul's case was no different from that of Peter. His house also had been renovated and solidly constructed. We read that as Saul united with the prophets in their worship, a great change was brought upon him by the Holy Spirit. He didn't decide to just renovate himself. The Holy Spirit did this. His house frame was therefore theologically correct because the Spirit will guide you into all truth. The external covering of his house, his words and deeds demonstrated his new profession. He joined in their songs of praise and prophesied with the prophets and spoke with great fluency and wisdom. The internal linings of his thoughts and feelings were refined. The Lord endowed him with courage and wisdom. And his house was furnished with modesty and self-deprecation as we read it elsewhere in Patriarchs and Prophets. Now some would say that Saul was clearly converted by the power of the Holy Spirit. A great change did take place in him, at least for a time. But was he really converted? There was an important difference between the experience of King Saul and that of Peter. Unlike Peter who thought his foundation was good, notwithstanding Christ's efforts to show him otherwise, Saul understood that he needed a new foundation. Because just before we read that the light of divine purity had shone upon the darkness of his natural heart, he saw himself as he was before God. So Saul realised that he needed a new foundation, whereas Peter did not. This knowledge, which Peter did not fully have, is the first necessary element for conversion. Peter had seen the divine purity and holiness of Christ, but he had not seen himself as he really was. Because of this, Peter did not understand the warfare against self that he must engage in. And he did not realise that in this conflict his own strength was useless. He thought his strength was good enough. Peter was blind to all this, even with the Holy Spirit working powerfully through him to dispel the darkness of the Jews around him, his own mind remained in the dark. It was only after Peter realised who he really was that he would sacrifice Christ to preserve himself, that he was converted. What do we call this knowledge of who you really are? Combined with a desire to be a different person altogether, that is what we call repentance. This properly informed decision to turn away from oneself is the first part of conversion. Only through repentance could Peter exercise true faith. Remember that faith is not a belief, 
but a turning away from self, from self-love, from self-confidence. It's an abandoning of self. This is why Christ's Object Lessons, page 112, says that, quote, faith is inseparable from repentance, end quote. And faith combined with repentance is what conversion of a new birth is. Now Saul had this knowledge, but when he saw the need to turn away from himself, he was too complacent to engage in the lifelong daily battle against his natural self and fell back on his self-assurance. His repentance was incomplete, and so his half-conversion was only temporary. In some regards, Saul's experience was like that of Balaam, of whom we read in Numbers 22:31. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way, and his sword drawn in his hand, and he bowed his head and fell flat on his face. Balaam was convinced of his sinfulness. He saw his true standing before God. He submitted to the authority of God and the Holy Spirit inspired his words and took control of his actions. But he remained unconverted. You see, the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit about one's true self is not sufficient for conversion. Foundations are made of concrete and concrete has two main parts. The first is cement and the other is water. Cement by its own is a powder. It has no strength. Water by its own is a liquid and also has no strength. But when the two are thoroughly mixed, it becomes concrete. Neither the water nor the cement are our own. Both come from God. But we can choose to mix the two together. Now, cement is a binding agent and water is a catalyst or what we would call a reactive agent. If the light of the Holy Spirit is the water that reacts in our heart, what is the cement? The cement is faith. Belief does not bind us to God or God to us, but faith does. Faith is longing to be transformed into his image, to be constantly in God's presence. It is constantly pleading with God for his word to be fulfilled in and through us. As scripture says in Hebrew 11, 6, Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And that is what faith is. Faith is diligently seeking God. The devils certainly believe, but do they seek God? Those whose confidence is in their belief depend on the action of their own minds. Those who have faith depend not in self, but wholly in God. It is not those that believe in God that find him, but those that have faith in him. Faith is not even seeking God casually. Faith is not to stop pleading until, like a Canaanite woman, we have obtained our request. Jeremiah 29, 13. And ye shall seek me and find me when ye shall search me with all your heart. And 2 Peter 3.14 Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him. But faith is not just seeking God to grant one's desires. Faith is diligently seeking for self 
to be abandoned that the word of God be fulfilled in us. It is seeking to abandon our existing house and rebuild a new one on a new foundation. For our hard hearts, our stubborn self-assurance to be demolished and to fall broken on the rock. It is seeking to replace every aspect of self with every word of God. Coast Object Lessons 3.12 This is the genuine evidence of conversion. The whole character must be stamped with the divine utterances. Every jot and tittle of the word of God is to be brought into the daily practice. While the water of repentance and the cement of faith are both gifts from God, it is the responsibility of the site foreman to obtain the cement and water in sufficient quantities to complete the job and to make sure that they are properly and thoroughly mixed if there is insufficient cement. Insufficient seeking and pleading with God, the concrete will be weak and crumble away. If the mixture is not thoroughly mixed, the water will not penetrate properly into the cement and the concrete will only set in parts, mainly on the surface, becoming a thin hard skin that easily breaks. Such have a superficial conversion, like that of King Saul, that is temporary at best. In both cases, the collapse of the entire building is assured. Testimonies, volume 2, page 634. Many who profess to believe the truth for these last days will be found wanting. They have neglected the weightier matters. Their conversion is superficial, not deep, earnest and thorough. Also, if the mixture is not constantly stirred, it will set and become useless before it can fulfil its intended purpose. This is the lifelong warfare of the Christian, is the battle against complacency, the battle against settling into self-confidence in one's belief and in one's actions. It is the battle against self. It is the battle to remain in a state of repentance and faith until the building is fully complete. Spirit Prophecy says, there is a positive necessity for a daily conversion to God, a new deep and daily experience in religious life. Another place, genuine conversion is needed not once in years but daily. This work must be continual. Divine grace must be received daily or no man will stay converted. And there are amongst our church members many who while professing to walk in the ways of the Lord who will be lost for they are not converted daily. They do not understand the divine science of true godliness. It is a science. Just like mixing of cement and water produces a chemical reaction. So how does the spirit of prophecy define conversion? Some quotes. Conversion is when one is divested of self and of self-esteem. Another. Conversion is to long to bear his image, to breathe his spirit, to do his will and please him in all things. And another. Conversion is when we become weary of sin and resolve to seek God earnestly. In conclusion, each of us has a house to build to weather the soon coming storm. Many are building houses on the sand with no foundation. 
Their trust is in their doctrinal beliefs, in their external coverings of good works and deeds, in the external linings of godly thoughts and feelings, and polite manners and respectable characters. Yet they are completely unaware that in the coming storm their houses will collapse before their very eyes. Having confused faith and belief, they are self-confident that they have a foundation, but they have none. They are unconverted. Conversion is the daily active working of repentance combined with faith. Repentance is the knowledge of who you really are in the light of the purity and holiness of Christ that leads to realisation of the warfare against self that each must engage in and in which we are utterly powerless to gain the victory and a desire to obtain that purity and holiness. And faith is diligently seeking after God to win that battle against self, to abandon yourself in order that every part of your being reveal the pure and holy word of God. Today, the church is full of those that believe, but few have faith. The church is full of remorse, but little repentance. The church is full of baptism, but few conversions. Is your house founded on a rock or on the sands of presumption? Will it stand the test? If you have not yet begun to build on a rock, do so without delay, because the storm clouds have already formed on the horizon. The lightning is already lightening up the sky, and the tempest front is rapidly approaching.